Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to our weekly radio show and podcast, The Wonderful World of Wine. I am Kim Simone here with my co-host, Mark Lenzi, and every week we bring you trending topics in the world of wine, and that could be science, it could be trends, it could be news, it could be wonderful things for you to drink, or it could be questions that you might have uh, or questions that lots of people might have about things related to wine and wine and food, which is one of my favorite things. So how are we doing this week, Mark? Everything is good, Kim. Summer is here. We're happy uh, drinking wine and cooling down. Summer here in New England, it's pretty warm, but there's always something for every season, isn't there? Yeah. And that's why we're here, talking wine. Exactly. So our first article today is about matching food and wine and some of the more difficult food and wine pairings that might be out there. Because there are some foods that are traditionally a little bit harder to pair with wine. But as people maybe are getting together a little bit more, yay, as we're all getting vaccinated and we can be outside and it's summertime, at least up here in Massachusetts, up in the Northern Hemisphere, you know, it is wonderful that people can get together again. And one of the things that we do when we get together is eat together, something that we were sort of lacking in during the pandemic. But there are some foods that maybe aren't the best partners for wine. And we wanted to go through a few of them and explain why they might be tricky and then ways to get around it. Particular food from this list, Mark, that you either have experience with or that you think is something that really is a legit difficult to pair with wine food? I think the first one they mentioned, artichokes, is always something that goes around in the the wine world. Mm -hmm. It's something that is always labeled as impossible to find a perfect pairing for. And they mentioned why that's the the reason. But have you heard that too, Kim, in the food and wine world, that artichokes... Absolutely. Whenever wine people talk about difficult to pair with wine food, I feel like artichoke is right up there at the top of the list. When I think of artichokes, I'm thinking like the stuffed version, right? The Italian, they stuff it with like a meat, right? That's what you think stuffed artichokes as your first? That's what I think about, but you're the foodie. So, I mean, in this article, they didn't mention how the artichoke was prepared, I guess. Right. So as the foodie, what is the definition of you when you hear artichoke, how it's prepared? So the way that I think of artichokes is the, the way that I learned to eat them when I lived in Venice for a semester in college, where you steam the whole head of the artichoke and then you peel off the leaves And then you just eat the leaves by sort of scraping the meat off of them with your teeth. So yeah, so no. (laughs) And it was more of like a snack, yeah, or an appetizer. Like frankly, that was that was like an afternoon snack that some of my roommates and my then friend, now husband, would eat. But like very Italian, kind of the article. Uh, describes them as um, boiling and serving them with the vinaigrette. I mean, maybe you might put a little bit of lemon juice on them or boil them with some lemon lemon juice. But yeah, very, very simple preparation. And you just get the full flavor of that that artichoke. So um, what's the artichoke contain that's throws the wine off? There's some sort it, of 
Yeah, it's a chemical compound called cynarin, which if you have, you know, there are some liqueurs out there that have this flavor, this flavor component. Cynar is the one that is most readily available on the market. And so it's it's got this bitterness to it, but also this particular vegetalness that doesn't really play well with a lot of wines, mostly red wines, like red wines and artichokes, I really have found don't go great. And in my family, we often will just eat the artichoke hearts as part of like an antipasto platter or just some, something to put on sandwiches, you know, something that's been, the heart has been marinated and we'll just eat it as one thing with a bunch of other things. So like in that situation, speaking specifically about artichoke hearts or if artichoke is part of another thing like a spinach and artichoke dip, if it's not the primary flavor, I think it can get hidden a little bit and so doesn't make as much of a problem for a wine pairing. But if the artichoke is the centerpiece of the dish. Just like you said, you know, like a stuffed artichoke or the way that I learned to eat them, you know, where you're just eating those leaves. They really do need to have just a basic, super duper dry white wine and absolutely nothing with oak and no red wine. Stay far yeah, so, away from the red. So the oak and uh, either oaked red or oaked white mm -hmm. would really make the artichoke or the whole dish sweeter, right? Yeah. The, that and I think the tannins, I think tannins are an issue with it too. I would think so. Yeah. If I mean, yeah. oaky and tannin kind of go together. Yeah. So it, they were recommending, Of you were saying you were in Italy with this. So they were mm -hmm. recommending served with Italian or, or French mm -hmm. wines. Yeah, I would and, stick with those really dry Italian white wines. So just like you could put lemon juice on this or a vinaigrette on this, think of your wine as serving the purpose of that hit of lemon juice or that hit of vinaigrette. You're giving it some of that tartness, some of that sourness, and it'll play the role of that sort of sour foil that the artichoke needs. What about an acidic wine, Kim, like a Sauv Blanc with a lemon citrus? Would that overpower the artichoke or do you no, think No, I don't think so. I think work? it's actually perfect and would be a great thing to try. I was also thinking when you, you mentioned earlier about the vegetal component, mm -hmm. what about a like Chilean Cabernet that's unoaked? Nice. I still would stay away from reds. I might yeah. do a Chilean Sauvignon Blanc though. So because not, a lot of those sometimes have like a green character to it. I would definitely go that route. Yeah. What about mm -hmm. an earthy red, like maybe an earthy Pinot Noir? Or, or a, I'm still or, saying no reds. So no. Wow, I can't get you on the red wagon <laughs> no, with that. I'm going to say no. No to the red. I guess because I'm still going back to the artichoke stuffed with some yeah, sort of meat. that's you know, true. And then I'm thinking you need something for that. So like what, but, what would you stuff your artichoke with? I'm only thinking breadcrumbs. I'm just thinking watching my Italian. I never cooked them myself. You know me. But I remember watching my Italian relatives, I think just stuffing it with like hamburger, like kind of like meatball oh, a material. Meat yeah. Oh, I've only seen them stuffed stuff with the like leaves. So when you, when you yeah. suck the leaves. In between would, the leaves, yeah. Yeah, you would take the meat off the leaves. Yeah, and so. I've seen it like, you know, you do like breadcrumbs and olive oil. So it's almost like that wonderful coating that you get on chicken cutlets, but without the chicken, <laughs> you get artichoke leaves instead. So that's what I would think you would do. Although I'm sure something like a crab stuffing or a mushroom stuffing would also be really good. That hmm. sounds good. Things and it was about. funny, the website that this article came from was matchingfoodandwine.com. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's simple. all about food yeah. and wine <laughs> together. It, I think it was more of an English, right? Because was it her, Fiona Beckett? Isn't yeah. she like a, yeah, a master, English. like an English? Yeah. So, so there were a few dishes that I, I think 
were kind of unusual flush. Like they mentioned chocolate fondant puddings, which I think it, in general, the chocolate idea was that if you have a dish like that, the chocolate coats your mouth. So it's difficult to pair something with it. And yeah, I have never, such a hard time with chocolate desserts and wine. Because of the reason the sweet chocolate stays coated in, in your mouth? Is I that- think part flavor, it's part sweetness and it's part texture. It's, it's a lot of reasons. I just, I'm one of those people that I just don't think that wine and chocolate go together. And they were kind of suggesting go sweet with sweet, you know, stick with yeah, that. That's root, the only, which, I feel like that's the only situation, like the only solution to the chocolate or the dessert thing is you just, you got to go with the sweet wine. When we talk chocolate, I don't think anything's tricky. It's like, to me, it's exciting to try to find something to pair because I love chocolate. <laughs> I think you, you just artichoke. love chocolate so much. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I like chocolate. That's really hard for me to say because I want to say I love chocolate, but maybe I just love chocolate in certain situations. Yeah. But I, I never can eat like a lot of it. So Next. one of the other things I talked about was very hot foods. Yeah. Um, specifically, she said very hot curries because she is English. And I would agree that hot, hot foods can be difficult to pair with wine. But like we have said before, spicy um, hot, right? Spicy like, hot. Oh, spicy yeah. This hot. is when yeah. mean spicy hot, like chili peppers. I would go with something with sweetness. So I almost always will do like an off dry or a fairly sweet Riesling. But I've had some sweeter or off dry rosés that I have found pair really nice with curry. But I think it also depends on your tolerance for hot. So like I will eat my curries mild, whereas my husband will eat them hot and we can share the same wine and both get enjoyment out of the pairing. But if I had his curry with the wine, I think it would just be too hot for me that there wouldn't be any wine that would be able to compensate for the heat of the dish. So I would say eat a spicy food at the level of heat that is comfortable for you and then match a slightly sweet wine with that. In the wine world, though, Kim, when this article is based on the tricky things to pair, Mm -hmm. this to me was like a typical thing for a food pairing, it's always the Riesling or mm-hmm. a sweeter wine, just like when we talk about uh, Chinese or food. Well, sure, that are but spicy. I mean, but that doesn't negate the fact that this is a tricky food to pair with wine, I especially when it's... there's only like one answer. When you look at it where that there's way, like yeah. a gajillion things you could pair with oysters. I'm or, thinking, yeah, it's always you know, the go to. So it's to me, it's not right. tricky because we always know that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> right. But not everybody yeah. does. So, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it's true. It's true. And they also stick in with hot, but not spicy hot. They mentioned soups, which was an interesting take. I thought oh, like they thermal said, hot. Yes. Yeah, thermal hot soups. They're saying uh, it's too much liquid, so it's difficult to compare it with the wine. And I wasn't really getting where they were going with this too much liquid. Because it it depends know. on what type of soup, right? I, I mean, totally, just I'm, I'm totally or, on board with you that. I'm like, because it's not necessarily, I mean, yes, food and wine pairings often are about the textures. But for me, it's much more about the flavors. And I mean- Yeah, so what type of soup? And then, yeah, it can be difficult based on the type of soup. So I like how we pick these things apart, Kim, (laughs) we see these articles. We're so like critical. (laughs) Yeah. What other one would you like to talk about, Kim? So I think I would also like to talk about a more common food, which is eggs. There you go, Um, yeah. Eggs are one that we often will find on these leads these lists of difficult to pair with food. And it's probably because it's it's an unusual thing when you're thinking eggs, you're thinking like 
breakfast, right? So Maybe, why would you but be not in other one? parts of the world? I think of- that's that's a uniquely American thing that we think of eggs only as a breakfast food. But like the French eat omelets for lunch. If you think of like a Spanish torta where it's an egg and potato cake baked kind of thing. We have that for dinner probably once a month. And there's plenty of wines that go really nicely with that. So I actually think that there are plenty of wines that do go well with eggs that I've tried with eggs. So on the yeah, one no, hand, I'm like, okay, you, we do hear that going. eggs can be difficult to pair with wine. But on the other hand, I feel like I've had a lot of success pairing eggs with wine. So because yeah, it's all sparkling, right? No, no. When I do the, the Spanish thing, I'll usually pop out a bottle of something Spanish. And usually that is red in our house when it comes to Spanish wine, because wow, we drink a lot eggs. of Tempranillo around here. But so it's more a- potato in there than it is eggs. But more still acid, though. No, it's usually and because I put like red peppers and sun dried tomatoes and like other and herbs and like other things in there. I think if you're just having like an omelet, like just a plain omelet and the only or a souffle and that's the only flavor and that's the only texture that you have, then it can be difficult. And then you want to go, I think, with something that is I, I hesitate to use the word simple, but. I'm going to a simpler white wine, something that isn't too overpowering and something that will complement the mildness of the eggs. But if you've got something like my Spanish torta where you've got other other stuff in there and you've got other flavors and maybe you've got, you know, mushrooms or you've got sun-dried tomatoes or things, you know, more things with umami in them, then you totally can do a lighter red. So I think it's more... You mm-hmm. took this like they were just do very simple eggs, just an egg, do something with acid, something sparkling. Yeah. And then you take it to like this whole other dimension where because you, I you, think eggs and I think, oh, dishes so that much contain more. eggs and not just like a fried egg, because yeah. I'm not going to have a glass of wine with a fried egg. <laughs> but I <laughs> like that because you what you're opening up here is there's so many things in the wine world that you can pair with all these different egg dishes. But I think there's also like a different way of looking at it that like Americans have one way of looking at it. And so when we look at eggs, you're right. We immediately go to breakfast foods. But there are so many other things out there that utilize eggs that that can be nice. Right. And And uh, lately I've been seeing so many articles with pushing wine for breakfast type. (laughs) I've seen a few of those, too. (laughs) I don't know. It's a new slogan, I guess, out there. uh, Wine for breakfast. Wine for breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now now maybe now that, you know, things are getting a little bit more back to normal and people are going back to work and can't be drinking all day long. (laughs) I don't know. They need to uh, wine companies need to push the consumption a little more. I don't know. What other food item trickiest foods to pair with wine? Kim, would you like to talk? Uh, I mean, I don't. Like you were, I think, with the spicy food, I don't necessarily feel like there's that much on this list that something that I would consider particular. One that did jump out at me was uh, mint flavored desserts, because I do agree that that is a difficult thing. I remember, Kim, now I'm going to refresh your memory here. We did a Girl Scout the Girl Scout cookie, cookie tasting, right? Yes. And I paired it with a Montepulciano and you thought I was crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Remember? But the Montepulciano had like this little hint of mint to it for some yeah, reason. Yeah, it had like a green thing going yeah. on. Yeah. So I, now I have a food I think is tricky for me that when I have it, I'm always thinking if I have a wine with it, it always tastes horrible and I'm going to hit you with it. And I need your advice what you think. Okay. To tell our listeners. It's, it's kind of a strange thing. 
if I have a cucumber, not salted, not like in a salad, just a cucumber, and then I drink a wine after, it does something where it has like this overpoweringly cucumber still in my mouth. Hmm. Have you ever experimented with that? No. I have to try it. It's the weirdest thing. Like it throws off my palate, and I'm like, I cannot, like, no crisp white can overpower the cucumber. And a red is just horrible. And you've tried this with a bunch of different things. Yeah. Well, yeah, not intentionally, but after a while, I'm like, now I got to try it. Well, sure. Like if, I mean, if you have cucumber in your salad or whatever, and you have a bite of the cucumber and then you have a sip of your wine and you're like, whoa. So see, like the other night I was having pasta and then I always finish with my salad, but I just had the cucumber on the side and I put the cucumber and then I took a sip of wine. I'm like, wow, this is horrible. The combination was horrible. So something I need you to to uh, follow up with me on. I will. I will follow up with you in a future in a future episode about cucumbers and wine. Just a straight cucumber. I need to go to the farmer's market tomorrow. So I will get a cucumber and I will do some experiments. Do you have anything like that? If you, you know, just sitting around, you have it's weird. Like, yeah. You know, well, sometimes like cucumber things weird. I just can't. Sometimes different foods will hit strangely depending on what I'm drinking. But I don't think that there's any one particular food that has really stood out to me to be like, wow, this is something that is completely changing the flavor of the wine for, you know, a number of different things. So. I, uh, I'll think a little bit more on that, but I'm going to try the cucumber thing. You're listening to the wonderful world of wine. And we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. You can hear us. Every week here on Franklin Radio, WFPR 102.9 FM, and you can find our past episodes on SoundCloud or iTunes. An article in Wine Enthusiast Magazine that I think Kim was excited for us to talk to you about today. What is a Super Tuscan and is the term still relevant? Kim, this has been around for a long time, and Mm -hmm. I think it's one of those things when we did misunderstood terms. Super Tuscan is one of those things, I think, in the Italian world that people maybe don't understand or what it's involved or where it's Mm -hmm. from or what's in it. What was your take on the super Tuscan terms, Kim? So I actually really liked how this article was written because it reminded me of what we were talking about in a previous show about California Appalachians or American Appalachians, how things are changing very quickly and the names that get associated with particular regions or particular styles of wine don't necessarily don't have the same bearing as if you were using the naming uh, conventions of someplace that has been producing wine for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and has a lot of history behind it. So this actually reminded me an awful lot about that situation. So what a super Tuscan is, and, and you will never find a bottle of wine that says super Tuscan on the label. It's this kind of umbrella term that is used for a lot of wines that are produced in Tuscany, but don't necessarily follow the rules to be able to call themselves a Chianti or a Brunello di Montalcino or a Vino Nobile di Montepulciano. So it came about about 50 years ago, I would say now, where some producers were either tired of being locked in by the really, really strict rules 
or they thought that the really, really strict rules were kind of dumb and wanted to do something to make a better product, a different product. Maybe they thought that their site was much more make a better wine if they planted a different kind of grape variety. Maybe Sangiovese didn't do really well there, but hey, Merlot grows great on the site that we have. So I really started with a number of producers kind of breaking those rules, but the problem came about in that they then didn't have any way to label their wines and have them be understood by the public as being a fine wine, because really all they could do was label their wines as table wine. So in the, I think it was the 1980s, maybe it was the 1970s, there was a kind of a new level that was added to the Italian structure where they could now name these wines or now put these wines in that kind of middling category. Oh, I found I, it here. It's, IGT it was actually was 1992. 82. So it was fairly late. And this is the IGT category. So it's not a table wine. It's not a DOC or a DOCG wine, which is those you know, kind of top of the pyramid. It was kind of this in-between classification, which really allowed winemakers to kind of do whatever the heck they wanted to do. So they didn't have to follow all the rules. They could now put their own blends together. They could grow different grape varieties. They didn't have to follow the rules of Chianti. And some of these producers and some of these wines have turned into like these iconic wines of Tuscany. So I feel like everyone knows the name Tignanello. Everyone knows the name Sasakaya. These are the flagship Super Tuscans. And these are wines that go for hundreds and hundreds of dollars a bottle. Thousands, if they are older vintages, are more rare now. But now we're kind of getting into that issue, like I was thinking, made the comparison between the U.S. and here, is that now there is so much diversity and so much fermentation, so much going on now. What does it mean to be a super Tuscan? It's not that everything is similar to a Tignanello or t similar to a Sasakaya, just at a you know more reasonable price point. It's that these producers really can do kind of whatever they want, and you don't really know what you're getting in the bottle when you buy an IGT Toscano. So there's no official Italian regulation on the term, and some say it's it's an Americanized term hmm. based on an American style of wines. People. In the United States, they like bold, heavy, almost inky style wine. So to make that style of wine, they had to add a Syrah or a Cabernet or some other form of grape to the wine to make it that style. See, I think that's funny that they're calling it an American style because originally it was because they were trying to make Bordeaux blends. So they were trying to make a Bordeaux style in Tuscany, yeah. not yeah. an American style. It, well, then they wanted to sell in America and they follow yeah. trends. So the Italians are very good at following the trends of the American market for making money. So you had mentioned Sasakaya was probably one of the more popular in the late 70s or early 70s. And they're on the coast of Tuscany. So the, they were growing different grapes. They had some Sangiovese, but they were doing very well, like you said, with, with Bordeaux varietals, Cabernet and Syrah. And they start bottling things and, and the government says, you can't call that labeled with our government rating. And they said, I don't care because I'm getting $100 a bottle for right. it. So I don't care if you, you certify it or not. I'm going to do what, what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And eventually that brand became so cult-like in Italy, they even gave Sasakaya its own DOC in mm -hmm. Bulgari. So, and it's only like, I think 150 acres or something. It's very small. Mm -hmm. And they produce like 
36, 37,000 cases a year. Which is small, small very, production very small. when it comes to like world famous wine. Yeah. So a lot of times it was flooding the market. You you could see these quote super Tuscan wines but from 10 to to $200, like you mentioned Tignanello at the high end, but this very good, just everyday Italian blended wines yeah. that are in that IGT uh, category that, I mean, just phenomenal values. And I can't tell you how many I stock because I love them. I love the blends, but people, I think what they see is they see Tuscany, mm-hmm. but they really don't want to really pay attention to what's in it. Like, there's a big difference for a wine that has more Syrah in it than, right. than more Sangiovese. You know what I mean? So you have to be careful. And right. that's kind of where I, I wanted to get to, Kim, was asking you, do you think they are still as popular as they used to be? I don't think they are. But I think I, that you are absolutely correct in that that word Tuscany. We've spoken before about how Italian wines are less about the producer and more about the region. And the region has become almost the brand. So like, it's less about what Chianti and that the fact that it is a Chianti. So it's more about, it says Tuscany than about a particular producer. And I think that this holds true for a lot of Italy. It's more about the fact that somebody likes Montepulciano d'Abruzzo and not a particular producer, although they may have a particular producer. But I think that what one thing that the Italians have done differently than maybe some other countries is that they have so many more smaller producers historically that were kind of late to the American market and the American stage that they really had to sort of brand themselves by that region and not so much about the producer. So I think that that really does hold water, your idea that people see the word Tuscany and have an idea in their head of what that's all about. And when it comes to these super Tuscans, then you're right. That can be a problem because if you see the word Tuscany, you associate it with, say, Chianti, and you're thinking you're going to get something that's great with spaghetti and meatballs, but you end up with something that is Cabernet and Merlot based and is a very different animal than your run of the mill Chianti, maybe at the same exact price point as this other wine that you're buying. Yeah. You know, you might be taken a little bit by surprise, the other you know, thing, and, and is- I think that 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 is the problem with these very broad regional designations that have a lot of flexibility because you can't really know unless you know the wine specifically um, what the style is that you're going to be getting. They also made a big change in the wine making techniques, too. So, you know, the in the Chianti, they used old oak, they used huge oak barrels and then. They wanted to use smaller oak, French oak, which is more American style winemaking. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's a there's a big difference in the styles too. It's not that right. earthy Chianti type of wine. It's yeah. it's very and I think that fresh, d- that right difference in winemaking just overall plays to the the changes in style and the difference in style. Yeah, you wouldn't get a big like vanilla buttery. <laughs> you know, creamy tannin kind of thing from Chianti because they tend to use, yeah, different barrels, older barrels. They age them for a little bit longer. So, yeah, they, even though they're from relatively close regions or even overlapping regions, the styles of wine that you might be getting will be very different. I'm finding over the years less and less customers are coming in looking for mm-hmm. super Tuscans. Like you said, they're looking for Chianti or Tuscan, but they're not asking super Tuscan. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's also hard you- because, you know, it's I don't want to say it's a marketing term, but like I said at the beginning, you know, it's not a it's not a 
a phrase you're going to see on a label. So I can imagine right. that it's confusing when we're talking about super Tuscans or if someone reads an article about super Tuscans and then they go to the store and they're like, I'm looking for a super Tuscan, but they don't see those words on a label. I was going to ask you as far as a restaurant list, do you think it's still an impressive thing if you were posting a client at a restaurant and you pick a super Tuscan off the list to impress them? Because do you think people perceive that? You know, we said it's not as popular, but do you, you still think people perceive a super Tuscan like a Tignello or a Sasakaya? As yeah, I think it would, like it would totally depend on if it was one of those wines. Sure. If it was one of those. Still has know, to be the big more guns. popular. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like you, you order a bottle of Celaya for a group at a team. Yes. If yeah. people even have a little bit of knowledge or understanding of Italian wines, then and, yeah, and I think that that's going to be those wines. Impression. Retail like one fifty maybe in mm -hmm. restaurants probably three three fifty yeah I would say so, yeah well I think it's there's just such great value out there I I can't tell you how many of these quote super tossings I've tried that I've just been so impressed by but I just run out of space because I love so <laughs> many of them I yeah. can't I honestly have probably four or five all the time you do and, have a soft spot for Italian I wines. always <laughs> yeah but I always buy like extra cases for my own I, I just think it's a great wine to have with yeah. food. Thank you for listening to us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Please leave us your questions and comments there. And you can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Cheers. Bye, bye, bye.